Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, April the 17th. It's mid-afternoon on the west coast of the United States, so it's already April the 18th in some parts of the world. And on April the 18th, uh, it's not the right word, celebration, uh, it's marked on April 18th by the Holocaust Remembrance Day. And we've done lots of shows, of course, on the Holocaust. Um, And uh, this is going to be remembered, the Holocaust Remembrance Day, from everywhere, from Yad Vashem in Jerusalem uh, to New Jersey, course, to uh, all over Israel. Uh, the uh, President Herzog has suggested that the commemoration must be above all dispute, bringing Israelis together. It's hard to imagine that happening, even Jewish Israelis. Um, even to Budapest, uh, where thousands will turn out for a march of the living Holocaust Remembrance Parade. And just as uh, we are Remembering Holocaust uh, Day uh, tomorrow. So the news on anti-Semitism isn't very encouraging. There was a report out, a a study from uh, uh, an institute in Tel Aviv University, that the number of anti-Semitic attacks in 2022 has risen uh, dramatically. Um, In the United States, for example, all anti-Semitic uh, attacks are on the rise. And actually, oddly enough, Israel, uh, United States seems to be leading in the number of anti-Semitic attacks. Of course, anti-Semitism is a complicated word. It means different things to different people. According to Google, the authority on all things, uh, anti-Semitism means hostility to or prejudice against Jewish people. And uh, Google... Uh, reiterates the fact that it's on the rise. We see um, an image that it was very flat until 1900, and it's been on the rise, anti-Semitism, all the way up to uh, to, to 2019. Uh, And appropriately enough, to mark Holocaust Remembrance Day, we're doing a show today on anti-Semitism with the author of a new book called Anti-Semitism, An Ancient Hatred in the Age of Identity Politics, uh, Philip Slayton, who is a very distinguished Canadian lawyer, writer, gardener, uh, man of the world. Um, Philip, should we be talking about anti-Semitism on Holocaust Day? Do people sometimes confuse the two? Because as you will remind us in your book, Anti-Semitism, um, the Holocaust, the uh, full-scale obliteration, the mass murder of six million Jews, um, whilst might be seen as as the climax of a certain kind of anti-Semitism, can't be seen purely um, as anti-Semitism. In other words, anti-Semitism is more than just the Holocaust. How would you distinguish them? How would you talk about anti-Semitism in the context of the Holocaust? Well, Andrew, the first point I would make is that anti-Semitism was around for a long time before the Holocaust, of course. And there were terrible pogroms in Eastern Europe directed against Jews. 
Jews were persecuted in other places too, in, in 15th and 16th century Europe, for example, the, in what is now Spain and Portugal. So the, the history of anti-Semitism is a long history, and it was a long history before the Holocaust happened. But the Holocaust was a huge punctuation, if you will, of the history of anti-Semitism, because once that awful thing happened, possibly one of the worst crimes ever in the history of mankind, once that happened, then everything after that, the, the history of the Jews, the fate of the Jews, the way Jews were treated, and of course, the creation and development of the state of Israel, everything was to some extent seen through the Holocaust prism. So although it was to some extent an isolated historical event, it's best seen, I think, Andrew, as part of a continuum. And it, as I just suggested, it certainly changed the thrust of anti-Semitism and it changed the fate of the Jewish people. The subtitle of the book, Philip, which um, I think is, is, is very interesting and, 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 and wise subtitle, uh, is an ancient hatred in the age of identity politics. Of course, our age of identity politics is driving, it would seem, the number of anti-Semitic attacks. How would you distinguish this ancient hatred from the kind of anti-Semitism that exists today in our age of identity politics? Well, that's a complicated question, but let me try and answer it. The first thing I'd like to say is I don't think all so-called anti-Semitic incidents or expressions of anti-Semitism should be treated the same. This is one of the themes of my book. I think there's a, a tendency now, a regrettable tendency, on the part of Jewish organizations, Jews and non-Jews too, to treat every expression of anti-Semitism as if it's the same as every other expression of anti-Semitism. I don't think that's helpful at all to either understand the phenomenon or to know how to deal with it. I think you have to distinguish between a whole range of kinds of anti-Semitic acts. It's what I call, for example, degradation anti-Semitism, which is just being sort of nasty to Jewish people. For example, you know, simple things like scrawling graffiti on a wall or, or, or calling out dirty Jew if a Jewish person is walking down the street, that sort of thing. Very uncivil very unpleasant, shouldn't happen for sure, and people responsible for it should certainly be criticized. But it's a long, it's a far cry from violent anti-Semitism where horrible acts of violence are committed by individuals, sometimes on a random basis. And it's a very far cry from what I call organized public institutional anti-Semitism. When anti-Semitism becomes part of the policy of, say, university admissions, admissions to clubs, uh, uh, editorial policy of newspapers, and uh, it culminates in the policies of government. So I think there's a range of anti-Semitic acts and anti-Semitic expressions, and I think we need to recognize that. And we shouldn't lump everything together in one basket and treat everything as if it's a complete catastrophe and uh, is heralds the, you know, the imminence of a new Holocaust, that's not helpful. So that's the first thing I wanted, I would like to say. Then when it comes to identity politics, I think we live in a new age now, uh, in some respects kind of an unfortunate age, which all these questions of Jewish identity, anti-Semitism and so on have to be rethought. And I've, I would pick out two or three main characteristics of this new age. One is the rise of populism generally through the world which is also a very fertile ground for conspiracy theorists. 
That's one thing. Um, a second thing is identity politics, which fragments the identity of societies and tends to make uh, one uh, people who have one identity uh, not tolerant of, maybe even hostile to those who have a, another identity. And the third thing is that all of this is turbocharged by social media, the kind of rampant social media, which I know you're something of an expert on. So the terrain has changed, the world has changed, and this ancient hatred is perhaps changed and is now uh, entered a new era driven by new forces. Later this week, I'm doing a, a show with the great Bosnia-American writer Alexander Himon. He has a new book out, The World and All That Holds. And one of the, well, the central character actually in the book is a Sephardic Jew from, um, from Sarajevo who was born uh, in the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and the book in part is about his experience and particularly of anti-Semitism in Russia, in China. When you talk about this ancient hatred, many Jews and historians suggest that there was something unique about this hatred of Jews. Is that fair, Philip? Were the Jews singled out? Um, was, and if so, was it for religious reasons? Was it for ethnic reasons? Was it for political reasons? Well, a couple of responses to that question, Andrew. Uh, I suppose to some extent the Jews were singled out indeed. Uh, Anti-Semitism has been called by some people a convenient hatred. Uh, people regrettably like to hate. They're, they have a tendency to hate. They seek scapegoats when things go wrong. And for a long period of time in many different places, the Jews were a convenient uh, scapegoat, a convenient group of people to blame. It was just a kind of a, almost like a political fact that these people were, were uh, easy to identify, were somewhat mysterious, and were you know, a good, a useful group to blame or to point to if something went wrong. As to what uh, prompted anti-Semitism as such, that's changed through history, I think. Initially, it was religion. And so, for example, when the Jews were expelled at the end of the uh, 15th century from Spain and Portugal, and many of them went to the Ottoman Empire, North Africa, these are what we now call Sephardic Jews, then it was based on religion. Um, but people discovered after a time that the thing about religion was you could change it. You could convert to Christianity and you were no longer a Jew and therefore you were no longer to, subject to Jewish to laws that uh, uh, discriminated against Jews or whatever. So all of a sudden people said, well, it's not, it's not religion that characterizes Jews, it's race. And of course that, you, can't, you can change your religion, but you can't change your race. And of course, that reached its um, height in Nazi Germany, which was all uh, prejudice against Jews, anti-Semitism was based on race. But now I think that's changed again. It's, there's what some people refer to as the third stage of anti-Semitism. Now it's not so much race as it is ideology, political ideology. So, for example, if you are a Zionist, if you believe in Zion, mm -hmm. that Zionist policies being pursued by the state of Israel, then that almost eclipses everything else and people will regard you, even though technically, according to rabbinical law, you may not be, will regard you as Jewish. So it's a shifting uh, concept. It's been shifted through history in a whole variety of ways. But I do think, Andrew, there is a central mystery behind all this, which is why were the Jews singled out? 
And I'm not sure there's ever been a really satisfactory answer to that question. Many people have tried to answer it. Would it be fair to say, Philip, you know, we've got to be careful here. I don't want to be accused of being anti-Semitic myself. Um, but would it be fair to say that the Jews singled themselves out, that they were an exclusive or they, their narrative of themselves was as an exclusive people? They were very hard to break into. Not anyone could choose to become a Jew. And this was particularly problematic for Christians and the history of the, the church and, and the Jews is, of course, an enormously problematic one. So was there something about the exclusiveness of how Jews thought about themselves that perhaps triggered some of the ancient hatred? I'm not sure I would say yes to the answer that question. Yes, Andrew. I mean, for example, one of the techniques that Jews and Jewish communities have used for a long time uh, in trying to seek kind of peace and stability in their lives is the technique of assimilation. They've attempted to assimilate to the broader community they're living in. So, for example, Jews in Germany at the turn of the last century, the century before last, were thought of themselves as very assimilated into the general German community. It turned out that they weren't so assimilated after all. Similarly, if you look at, say, 19th century France, where the Jews were granted citizenship, the possibility of citizenship, and they sought to assimilate themselves into the Jewish, into the French, French life, uh, the French business, the professions, even the army. And then, of course, the case of Alfred Dreyfus at the end of the 1900s, they learned a, a lesson, which is that no assimilation doesn't work. So I think that the Jews have not, I mean, they obviously have some distinctive characteristics, particularly if they're uh, seriously religious. But I think on the whole, Jews have sought, certainly in recent times, to assimilate, to become part of the broader community. And one of the tragedies of identity politics, modern identity politics, is there is increasingly no broader community to assimilate to. Everybody is driven into their corners. Everybody has to emphasize a very distinct... Uh, so we live... Uh, I don't remember who, who wrote this, but a very interesting book. We basically live in a Jewish world now, which um, we're all Jews. I mean, metaphorically, anyway. Well, metaphorically, um, maybe. Yeah, uh, Philip, um, I, I take your point on 19th century France or 20th century Germany, but I was thinking more of 15th or 16th century Spain in terms of that ancient hostility. Can one make generalizations about which religions in particular uh, were most guilty of anti-Semitism? Yeah, we'll sure. talk about Israel later, of course. Sure. But sure there is can. a narrative, and we've had it on this show several times, which suggests that the Islamic world was much more open, much more tolerant, much more sympathetic That's to the Jews than the Christians. Is there any truth to that? It's completely true. Uh, the Islamic world was very receptive and welcoming to the Jews, particularly when they were expelled from Spain and Portugal. The Ottoman Empire took a lot of Jews in, uh, both in North Africa and in what is now Turkey. Uh, Jews were very successful for a long time in that part of the world. They had a second-class status as, citizen, as citizens, but this didn't seem to be too troubling and didn't seem to... So did everybody else in, in the Ottoman Empire. I mean, there well, was no different from practically well, everyone else, all the yeah. other peoples who lived there. So I, I think you're right, and I think one of the tragedies of the modern world is the way increasingly it seems that 
Arabs and Jews are pitted against one another or are seen to be natural enemies. They are not natural enemies. Is that particular enmity is a legacy of the history of recent history of Palestine and then Israel. And it's a very unfortunate legacy. Yeah, and, and, and quite, I, I often make this point, and it's become even boring for me to make it, but the term anti-Semitism should refer to hostility to Arabs as well, because the yes. Jews and the Arabs are both Semites. Yes, I think that's true. Now, just upon the, on the question of Christianity, which you raised uh, earlier, uh, the history of the Christian church vis-a-vis -vis Jews is extremely bad. Uh, I mean, it goes back to the belief in what is a historically erroneous fact that the Jews murdered Christ. I mean, the Christian church has never got over that. Uh, there are still important parts that seem to cling on to that erroneous fact. And the history of the church through, through the centuries, including during the Holocaust, is very bad vis-a-vis -vis Jews. And many writers have, have pointed out or have suggested that, the, in a sense, the origins of the Holocaust can be found in Christian uh, beliefs and doctrine and history. So to directly answer your question, uh, Muslims, Islam has been far more receptive until quite recently, the Jews and Christianity ever has been. Tragic irony. Um, Philip, you're, you've made a, a career as a very distinguished Canadian jurist, lawyer, writer on law. Uh, you were a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford in the 1960s. You haven't written much about the Jews. I know you're half Jewish. Why, why did you write this book? Um, well, I mean, the, the, the real answer to that question is a publisher rang me up and said, uh, listen, I'd like you to write a book on anti-Semitism. Why'd they ring you up? You of all people. Well, that's a good question. So I, I asked that. Why, why me? And, they, and the publisher said, well, because you're the guy, whatever that meant. So I, my initial reaction was, no, I'm not really very interested in this. But then I started to think about it, and I started to get seriously interested in it. And I'm very glad I wrote this book because, first of all, I enjoyed writing it. You as yourself a writer will know that that's the biggest payoff to writing a book is just the act of creation, enjoying doing it. But I also learned a great deal, and I developed and refined my own views on all these very difficult and thorny questions. I felt I had something to say, and I tried to say it, and the readers will judge whether or not I was successful. Yeah, one of, one of the reviews said that uh, you've succeeded in writing a book on an explosive subject, which is fair to everyone, traditionalists, Zionists, assimilationists, and Palestinians. I'm somehow suspicious of that, but Perhaps that's one of the reasons why the publisher called you up. I mean, you you were in your garden, Philip. You were a gardener, lawyer, author. Why why have, as the Jews would say, the sorus of writing about anti-Semitism? Well, you know, you, an in, a subject grabs your interest and you start thinking about it and reading about it and exploring it. And you say, hey, this is really interesting. And you write it for that reason because it's really interesting. I mean, you, if you look at that shelf of my, some of my books that you just showed, you may have noticed there's a book on tennis, yeah. something I'm interested in. So, and when you're kind of a writer, I mean, I used to practice law and I retired from that. And so I needed to occupy my mind and my time. And I have done that by pursuing subjects that interest me. You mentioned before we went live that you grew up both in South and North London in Jewish Finchley and in... Right non-Jewish Richmond. You're from a mixed marriage, as they say, Jewish father, uh, sure. non-Jewish mother. Do you see yourself as half Jewish? Is this Can one be half Jewish? It's like being half pregnant or something. 
Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, one of the issues I deal with in the book is who is a Jew? And that, you might think that's a simple question with a simple answer, but not so. It's, this, it's a complicated answer. And increasingly, the scholarship on this, that particular subject, the people who write about it and think about it, repudiate the old kind of rabbinical law notion of what it takes to be a Jew, which is to have a Jewish mother, essentially, and relies upon self-identification. You know, you are a Jew if you think you're a Jew and if you say you're a Jew. And that's the way modern scholarship about Jew Jews and Judaism proceeds. I don't think I entirely accept that. I say in the book that I grew up in the Winnipeg Jewish community, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and the Jews of well, Winnipeg. You and five others, right? No, it was about 20,000 at that time, less now. And the Jews in Winnipeg, they knew who a Jew was and self-identification had nothing to do with it. So it is complicated. I, most people, traditionalists at least, to answer your question, would say, no, you can't be half Jewish in the same way you can't be half pregnant. Um, and if your father's Jewish as mine was, and your mother isn't, and she wasn't, she was a Roman Catholic, non-observant Roman Catholic, then you're not Jewish. But the fact remains is there's a lot of people, increasingly large numbers of people who come from that kind of mixed marriage background, and they have maybe a bit of an identity crisis as a result. They have to resolve however they can. You wrote an interesting piece recently in uh, the, the, the Globe and Mail, Canada's leading newspaper on anti-Semitism. You quote the great Austrian writer Stefan Zweig. That generation wrote very profoundly about anti-Semitism. And perhaps Vienna, which was the center of anti-Semitism, where Hitler learned to hate Jews as with the vitriol that um, we're, we're all now too familiar with. What, what was it about Vienna that, that made it such a hotbed for anti-Semitism and for Jewish thinkers and Jewish writers and Jewish philosophers, Jewish novelists, Jewish scientists? Well, I, I, I don't think I can really answer that, Andrew. Certainly you're right. It was a very, the Jewish community of Vienna was a very accomplished community in all kinds of ways. Stefan Zweig was one member of that community, but there were many others in a variety of ways. Uh, I mean, Vienna was, to some extent, a stopping off point for a lot of the Jews who fled Eastern Europe, who fled what is now uh, Ukraine or what is what is now uh, Russia, uh, uh, Western Russia. Uh, the same thing with my grandparents on my father's side. They fled what was... Russia, then the Ukraine now, and they traveled through Europe, stopping off along the way as they went. They ended up, fortunately for my family, in London, England, but some didn't get that far. They ended up in Vienna or Berlin and then were caught up in the turmoil of the Nazi Germany and World War II. So it was a stopping off point. I mean, a lot of very talented, smart people left where they were born, where they lived their early life, and tried to try to find a different place to live. And I think partly that was historic. Uh, for Vienna. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the Jews of Vienna and the Jews generally in that part of the world at the turn of the last century sought desperately, and they thought initially successfully, to assimilate into the broader community. And they thought they'd done that. They discovered later on that they that had not been successful. The gorilla in the room, of course, is Palestine, Israel. We've done many shows on that. Um, you mentioned it earlier. Can one be against Israel? Can one be an anti-Zionist and 
not be an anti-Semite? Or in your view, can one oppose the state of Israel but not be against Jews? Yes. The answer to both questions is yes. Absolutely, you can be opposed to Zionism but not be anti-Semitic. I mean, the idea that somehow you're anti-Semitic because you disagree with some of the policies of the state of Israel, particularly what I would call, not all everybody would agree, but I would call some, some of the egregious policies of Israel, is absurd and dangerous. And I repudiate it entirely. Uh, beyond, but more broadly, if you're opposed to the creation, the existence, the continued existence of the state of Israel, as opposed to, let's say, the settlements on the West Bank, but not just a policy of Israel, but the state itself, that gets more difficult. But I would still say that you can be uh, opposed to the existence of Israel as a state, certainly in its current form, without being anti-Semitic. I would point out to you that many uh, Jews, particularly Orthodox Jews, uh, do not particularly support the state of Israel. They don't think that a secular state has much of a place in Jewish life. So it's, it's a complicated thing. But the most important point is, I think, that anti-Zionism does not equate anti-Semitism, even remotely, even though many people, particularly in the Jewish community, obviously, say that it does. They are mistaken. They are wrong. And that view is, very, is a dangerous view to hold. There are many Jews, though, who argue um, that the vitriol of anti, but when you peel away the vitriol of anti-Semitism, of anti-Zionism, you get to anti-Semitism. Been a huge debate in England, for example, amongst anti-Zionists within the Labour Party. Yeah, it in America as well. Uh, is there some truth to that, Philip? No, no, has has anti-Zionism become an excuse for traditional anti-Semites? No, I really don't think it has, and I think that this. The possibility that people raise or the idea that it is, is not helpful. I mean, for example, Nelson Mandela was extremely critical of the treatment of the Palestinians by Israel. He called Israel an apartheid state, which is a red rag to a bull in many quarters, obviously. Desmond Tutu uh, said, said similarly, said the same thing. Many thoughtful commentators, analysts, knowledgeable people about the Middle East, about Palestine, about Israel, about the history of that part of the world, believe that the Zionist policies of the state of Israel, and in particular, and in particular, the current policies vis-a-vis the West Bank, uh, are not supportable, are contrary to human rights, and and are, are, are just, just egregious in the extreme. But to say that those people, therefore, are anti-Semitic, hate Jews, hate everything to do with Jews, is ridiculous. And it's just bad thinking uh, and dangerous thinking, as I said before. So, no, I, I, I think there may be some people who are basically anti-Semitic and don't cloak that by saying, by being, uh, 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 talking about uh, Zionism, being anti-Zionist. But that, that, that may be, I don't know, maybe there are some. But the basic point is that you can be opposed to the policies of a particular state, particularly policies like this, without being opposed uh, to Jews in particular. I mean, it would be the same thing as if somebody in the United States said they were opposed to some particular policy of the United States government and they were accused of being treasonous or unpatriotic or something as a result of that, when all they were doing was questioning a policy of their government, which we are all entitled to do. 
You mentioned populism earlier and its place in all this. As I mentioned, anti-Semitic incidents are on the rise in the United States. Um, and it seems as if the Jewish community, both in and out of America, has a weird relationship with the extreme right in America, populism. I found a piece in Haaretz this morning suggesting that uh, Paul Gossar, one of the most right-wing of right-wing um, uh, GOP lawmakers, has spread blatant anti-Semitism, invoking the Nazis on Holocaust Memorial Day, uh, Remembrance Day. And yet, on the other hand, the right-wing of the Republican Party, um, particularly in terms of its association with Pentecostal Christianity, has become aggressively pro-Zionist. Could you be in America, and it's weird, but I, I bet there are people like this. Could you be an aggressive pro-Zionist and anti-Semitic at the same time if you're a Christian? Well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, your premise is correct. I mean, there's about 100 million evangelical Christians in the United States, and they are, to the extent one can tell, strong supporters of the state of Israel. And in fact, Benjamin Netanyahu, currently the prime, the prime minister of Israel, who knows for how long, but currently the prime minister of Israel, has said that the evangelical Christians in the United States are the biggest and most important supporters of Israel in the world. There's a lot of them, and some of them are highly influential. However, it has also been pointed out that you can support in this weird world we live in. You can support the state of Israel as these evangelical Christians do for their own particular dogmatic reasons without liking or being nice to or thinking well of Jews. Right, like Paul Gossar or probably like Donald Trump. And that may well be. Just because, I mean, the, the state of Israel may have some part to play in your own particular evangelical Christian thinking, but that doesn't mean you particularly like the Jews who founded it or who live there now or Jews in general. Um, let me make one further comment. I mean, it goes back to something I said earlier. There's a lot of loose talk about conspiracy theories involving Jews, you know, the famous Jewish space lasers created the California, were responsible for the California wildfires and things like that. Uh, people like the, the Republican lawmaker you just mentioned. But I think, getting back to what I said earlier, I think it's very important that everybody, the Jewish community and everybody else, not to go berserk when these kinds of absurd things, stupid things, inaccurate things, you know, just wrong things are said. You have to see them for what they are, and you have to deal with them for what they are. And I'm very fond of saying that the, the best response to misinformation is to give the facts, and the best response to a bad argument is a good argument. So I think we need to be discriminating in how we address these things and not just tot up a number of incidents and say, oh, anti-Semitism is on the rise in some vague general way. What does that mean exactly? Well, according to the reports, it means more and more anti-Semitic attacks. But I yeah, but what, take, what, what's an attack? Though? Yeah, when, I mean, you're asking me. I, I'm just reporting on the news. Um, I wonder, in terms of this, what you call this berserk response, I, I see it a little bit on the show. We've had some younger Jewish writers, Dara Horn, for example, brilliant young woman, excellent yeah. writer. She has a book, People Love Dead Jews. Another young uh, Jewish uh, journal, uh, journalist, Emily Tamkin, has written a book on bad Jews. Is there a, particularly in the American Jewish community, Philip, is there a, a paranoia, particularly amongst 
young intellectuals, the Dara Horns, the Emily Tampkins of the world, that the whole world is designed to be against the Jews? Well, yeah, and yes, you didn't mention the book by David Badil, who's an English, actually. Yeah, he's a uh, very particularly unpleasant fellow. He's a Chelsea yeah. fan. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. And, uh, and he he's, he has the nerve, Badil. I'm a big Spurs fan, and we're the Yids, because all well, Jews yeah. in London support Spurs. And this guy who's a Chelsea fan, and also he claims Jewish, um, says well, he, when we shouldn't be using this word, which is enormously cheeky. Well, he says, I mean, his beef is he wrote a book, I can't remember what the title of it now, but he wrote a book fairly recently, and his point is that, oh, Jews are ignored. People don't pay them enough attention. <laughs> This is a kind of a form of anti-Semitism, kind of ignoring Jews. So it seems as if, you know, in, in certain quarters, whatever happens, whatever anybody does or says, somehow or other ends up as a form of anti-Semitism. I've read Dara Horn's book, which is an interesting book. I mean, her point is... In other words, you didn't like it when you said it's interesting. <laughs> no, I think she... It's I think good. She, I mean, she's very entertaining. I think she's probably well, wrong. I, I, haven't had, I haven't had the pleasure of talking to her, so I don't know how entertaining she is. But, but well, the book's entertaining. The book is entertaining, but the it takes a... Although it's probably not supposed to be. <laughs> well, it takes a point that's worth a magazine article and, and, and not a book. Uh, that's that's my be my criticism of it. But there is, I think, Andrew, kind of a whole, and I, I, I use this word in my, in my own book, there's kind of an industry. There's kind of like an international anti-Semitism industry that tots up all these incidents there's all kinds of organizations putting out the kind of reports and statistics that you've been showing on the screen, decrying what's going on. There are politicians, non-Jewish politicians, who jump on this particular bandwagon because it suits their political purposes. Macron in France has been pretty good at this. Macron's been on the show. He didn't mention the Jews when he was on my show. Well, you, well, you didn't ask him the right question. Uh, Angela he had Merkel, grown a beard, though. Maybe he was trying to look like a Jew for the show. Maybe. Well... Yeah, I mean, my my very first girlfriend who said to me once that, her, that the great tragedy of her life was that she wasn't Jewish. So there are people <laughs> who, who would like who would like to be Jewish when they're not. But but there is a whole kind of almost I don't want to overstate the case, but there is this international industry, organized many organized organizations, often well funded by the Jewish community, looking around to find anti-Semitic uh, uh, incidents compiling statistics which are i think sloppy and, and and aggregate too many things that should not be aggregated not sufficiently discerning about when to make not making judgments about what they see when they should make judgments uh, writing books uh, that may be entertaining and amusing or not i don't know but i don't think a lot of this uh, adds to helps deal with what is an important problem and I think the really important problem, as you've been suggesting, I think, in the, our earlier conversation, the really important problem is the Middle East, this horrible situation in the Middle East, which is chronic, which seems to defy solution, although I think there could be solutions, which is very dangerous. Um, right now, attention has been deflected away from it because of the war in Ukraine and also the problems in Taiwan, with, over Taiwan. It's a very dangerous chronic situation that's only getting worse. And so all the rest of this stuff, this kind of noise and, and shouting, obscures that when what we really should be doing is trying very hard to figure out how that's good, that situation can be resolved. It's very difficult, but it, it's capable of resolution, I think. Although some people might argue that all this anti-Semitism, claimed anti-Semitism, all these charts on the rise, 
underlines the importance of the state of Israel. One of the other things that occurs to me, particularly in contemporary Israel, is that it's supposed to be a state for Jews, but there is two kinds of Jews there, the religious Jews and the secular Jews, progressive Jews and incredibly conservative Jews, and they essentially have nothing in common. That's absolutely uh, Apart from the fact that, that they're both Jews, whatever that means. So uh, at what point, conceivably, Philip, could Judaism or being Jewish become just such a generic, broad term that it's actually meaningless? Well, I think we may be close to that now. I mean, most Jews, when asked in, by pollsters, like the Pew Research Organization, for example, what, whole, what, what gives you your Jewish identity, they seldom mention religion. They generally talk about, oh, a common culture, a common history, except, Andrew, there is no common culture. There is no common history. If you look at the composition of the international Jewish community, I could go on about this for a long time, but I'll give you one particular instance. So the, the original settlers, if you will, of Palestine, as it in the, became Israel, were the Ashkenazi Jews, essentially from Eastern Europe. And then shortly after Israel was founded, was a huge influx of Sephardic Jews, mostly from North Africa. But they're both Jews, Ashkenazis, Sephardis are Jews. But the Ashkenazis looked down their nose very much at the Sephardic Jews, their fellow Jews, but looked down at them because they were Sephardic. They, they said things like they were good only for farm laborers or domestic servants. Uh, even, even high-ranking Israeli politicians, I have several quotations about this in my book, talked about you know, how, the, how, how dreadful this was. So right from the get-go, uh, there was little or no harmony or unity or common purpose in the state of Israel. And indeed, even Theodore Herzl, founded political Zionism, he predicted that this would happen. He predicted that the huge problem of Israel were it to be created, he died long before that happened, would be how are you going to take this diverse, complicated uh, group of people who have often little in common and create a cohesive state with them as the, the citizens. Jean-Paul Sartre said, famously said, there's only one thing that holds Jews together. There's only one thing that holds the international Jewish community together. It's not common culture. It's not common history. It's not common religion. It's anti-Semitism. It's the outside uh, uh, hatred of Jews that drives them together, forces them into some kind of community. That and chop liver. Philip, um, you uh, let's say, and you you've given some advice on Jews. Said to women like Dara Horn, be less paranoid. Not everything is an affront to you, um, and that, of course, reflects our age of identity politics, where everyone takes everything horribly personally. I, I think you're right on that. But of course, as you suggested at the beginning, there are real anti-Semites in the world today. Some yeah. who want to murder all the Jews, others who just want to give them grief. What advice would you give them? Can they be redeemed? Are they are anti is anti-Semitism reformable? If you could get one or two no, of these people in not. a room, what would you say to them? No, I don't think it's reformable, Andrew. I think it will always be with us, as indeed many other kind of horrible perversions of human nature or expressions of human nature will be with us. Um, but let me make just one last comment, perhaps before we, we end, and that's this. If there's a it's it's fashionable or often happens that Jews are described as victims, somehow the victims of history, even today, the victims of history. 
Except as I point out in my book, this is a curious description of Jews because most Jews are in one of two places. There's about half, half the Jewish international Jewish population is in Israel. And putting aside who, who these Jews are, just looking at the state of Israel, it is an immensely successful economic powerhouse, nuclear armed regional superpower. So I don't see much, that's not a victim state. That's a very powerful, influential, small in numbers, but state. And then if you go to where most of the other Jews in the world are, which is your country, the United States, somewhere up between six and seven millions, and you'd say, who are these people? Who do you come up with? You, you find a big professional class. You find people who run very successful businesses. You find Nobel laureates. You find, you know, Academy Award win winners. You find it on the, there are a lot of people who don't fit into these categories, but on the whole in the diaspora, Jews have been highly successful. So I don't see a bunch of victims there either. So this idea somehow that this is a group of victims in dire danger. Now, I take your point, Philip, but anti-Semitism, a lot of the conspiratorial anti-Semitism is rooted both historically and today on the Protocols of Zion theme that the Jews control the world, the Zuckerbergs and the Sandbergs and so on and so forth in a way that that response seems to be feeding that. And that's not true either. There are lots of ordinary Jews, Jews that's who true. aren't wealthy or powerful. That's true. Actually, I count myself amongst those. But but my point is... Well, you said you weren't Jewish. Well, I'm half Jewish. You said you can't be half Jewish. Well, I didn't quite say that, but it, 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 it's an open... Well, you said you, can't, you, can't, you can be as half Jewish in the same way as you can be half pregnant. Well, yes, that's what you suggested earlier. Now, my point is that, that it's, we should avoid stereotyping of any kind. And one, one kind of stereotype is to say, well, Jews are historically victims. To some extent, that's certainly been true in certain junctures of history. Is it true today? I don't know. I mean, what I would like to see generally is a much calmer, more rational, more discriminating, more careful approach to what is undoubtedly, what undoubtedly exists in the world, which is discrimination. So... Only when that happens, only when we have that approach, can we start dealing with this in a sensible kind of a way. Will we know what to say to that man in the room that you just uh, 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 suggested? Um, we need to be much more uh, careful, discriminating, and analytical in how we talk about anti-Semitism, which will exist for sure. And I think will always exist along with many other, as I said before, unfortunate expressions of human nature. Uh, 